Acts chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 12 uh, through 26. Uh, uh, we're our second week into our, our study uh, on uh, the book of Acts and how the early church uh, operated and what they did and how the Lord uh, blessed their work. Let's uh, read then the word of God, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, uh, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And they had entered, uh, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room and were uh, staying, uh, where, excuse me, where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, uh, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon uh, the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these uh, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadalma, uh, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Uh, may his camp become desolate and let th- uh, let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of them. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when they were taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection uh, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, who uh, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 uh, apostles. Let's pray before we uh, begin the sermon. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, again, we just come into your presence and ask that you would uh, speak to us through your word. You have spoken in your word, and yet, Lord, we just come with a uh, a heart that asks that we would hear your voice today. Uh, that it would not be uh, me speaking, but as we open this passage of Scripture, we would see what, what you are saying to us and what you would have us do and how we should uh, think about this passage and apply it to our lives and just stir up uh, in us a, a greater uh, devotion for you. Uh, and we just praise your name in your name. Amen. Some of you uh, maybe are a little more interested in football than others, uh, but there was a famous football coach uh, by the name Vince Lombardi, uh, and he's the guy that they named the Super Bowl uh, trophy a- after. Uh, he was the coach of, of the Green Bay Packers uh, for a number of years, and he was a very successful coach, a very winning coach. Uh, and the story goes, and, and it's a true story, that every year he would start out the season by taking all of these professional football players around the locker room and he would he would give the same sort of speech. He would take a football and he would show it to the men and he would say, men, this is a football. And he would describe the football and he would go through the basics of what a football is. And then he would take them out to the field and he would say, this is where we play. This is the field. And he would outline the end zones and the yardage and the field goals. And, and you've got to think about this for a minute. This is not uh, little league kids who, who have no concept of how to score touchdowns or, or what the object of football is. This is not high school or college kids. This is professional 
football players. I don't know about you, but if I was on that team, I, I would probably feel a little bit insulted every year. I would, I would kind of roll my eyes. Oh, here we go again. Back to the, yes, of course, Mr. Lombardi, this is a football, blah, blah, blah. Jack Nicholas, the, the famous golfer, uh, it's, it's said, and again, a true story, every year uh, before the season began, he would go back to his coach, uh, a guy by the name of, of Jack Grout, and he would go to his coach and he would say, teach me to play golf. Uh, some of us that are younger, and, and I have to admit, I, I didn't know much about Jack Nicholas, other than or Jack Nicholas, other than knowing his name a little bit. But he's basically, you know, the Tiger Woods uh, of of his day, right? Uh, very famous uh, golfer, and yet every year saying to his coach, "Okay, show me the basics. Take me back uh, to the fundamentals." I think this is something that sometimes happens uh, in the church or, or in our Christian life. We get, we get going so well, we get moving so far along, we say, I've been a Christian for so long, that we take the basics for granted. Particularly when it comes to being a church. What does a church do? What, does it devote ourselves, what, what do we devote ourselves to doing? Why are we here? And sometimes, particularly in our culture, we can get so driven by do, but to do the next big thing that we forget the fundamentals. It's kind of would be like the sports player that, that jumps on the latest fad, maybe a diet or a training program, because he needs to get that extra inch or that extra second of speed in his, his uh, running time or something like that. And, and yet you can get so elite that you forget the basics. Sometimes golfers, even after years of playing golf, they have to relearn uh, how to do their basic uh, golf swing uh, because of wear and tear on their body and on their back. Well, we as a church need to go back to basics, go, go back to fundamentals. And, and so don't look at uh, this sermon and even some of the other coming ones in Acts as sort of a, oh, well, I, I know this, Pastor, this is this is so basic, but look at it as this is a sort of this is a football kind of moment that we need to do well at the fundamentals. And if you've ever played a sport, you know, usually like the first week of your training camp or your practices, all the coaches do is, is the basics running, sprinting. If you're football, basic passing basic drills, maybe even uh, basketball or soccer, which I played some soccer. It was it was all the basic kicks. And then after the fundamentals were secure, then we learned plays and those sorts of things. So we want to ask the question this morning, what does the church uh, devote itself to doing? And this is even before the church gets the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is very foundational for the life of the church. We begin to see them doing and practicing the same things they will continue to practice uh, through uh, the book of Acts, particularly relying on prayer and using the word of God. So first this morning, we need to devote ourselves to prayer. And you'll see that that's precisely what the disciples do. The disciples are waiting in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 12 through 14. And when they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. And, and, and Luke here goes through the names of the twelve. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So if you're ever thinking about the disciples, there is Simon Peter, but there's also Simon the, the zealot. There is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed, but there was also the other Judas, Judas uh, the son of James. And it was not uh, uncommon in the ancient world, uh, particularly in Palestine during this time, to have a lot of overlapping overlapping names. And that's why there's a whole bunch of Marys that are listed as well uh, in the Gospels. Then we have verse 14. All of these with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Um, these women would have been the women that, that had visited uh, the empty tomb, had seen uh, Jesus. It was Mary Magdalene. There was a woman named uh, Joanna. There was Mary, the mother of James. Um, 
There was the mother of the sons of Zebedee as well, James uh, and John. And there was also another woman named Salome, all of who uh, went up. Uh, The brothers of Jesus, uh, Jesus did have brothers. Mary had uh, other uh, children. They, of course, weren't virgin birth. But one of them became a founder or a, a key figure in the early church, James. A different James than John's brother, James but the same James uh, who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. Are we confused with all the Marys and Jameses and Johns yet? Um, uh, The point is, these are all the people that had followed Jesus. In fact, verse uh, 15 tells us there were were about 120 uh, believers, people that had stuck with Jesus, stayed loyal, knew he had died, uh, had witnessed uh, the resurrection. In fact, Paul tells us Jesus had appeared to as many as 500 uh, of the brothers and sisters. So 120 of them uh, are gathered and they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Jesus had said, and this is recorded in Acts and this is recorded in the end of Luke, uh, that he had said, after I ascend uh, up into heaven, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait because you're going to get the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to empower them to be witnesses, to go out. And as we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit is something that each one of us has when we become a a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Most of the disciples were probably not from Jerusalem. Uh, Some of them, like Simon, uh, Peter, and Andrew, were from the region of Galilee up to the north. So it would have been natural for them to say, okay, we're going back, we're going to be fishers again. So this command to wait in Jerusalem was important. Well, what do they do while they're waiting? Uh, they didn't have, uh, you know, like board games that they could sit around and play uh, parcheesi. But they devote themselves to prayer. Verse 14 again. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, I have one accord. It's a car. It's a Honda. Uh, that's bad. Um, yeah, that's a that's a bad pun. Um, the idea of one accord really just means with one mind and purpose. Uh, they were they were unified. They were in this together. They had the same mindset, the same vision, if you will, the same uh, purpose. They are all there, and they are eager to see what the Lord is going to do next. The Lord has ascended into heaven and he said, you are going to get the Holy Spirit. I am not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, who John's gospel calls the comforter. And and so they they have this purpose now in gathering for prayer. And, And they are going to be witnesses and they get themselves ready by spending time with their Lord, praying to him. Uh, It's used elsewhere in the book of Acts. Some places it describes the early church and this unity that they had. Acts chapter 246, it says, Day after day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, attending the temple with one accord. They would go back to the temple, even as Christians now, and they would worship together. They would be unified in sharing the gospel to people in the temple and even Peter and others preaching in the temple. Acts 4.24 says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, uh, speaking about how they had been persecuted. But then when they heard of this, they they were in worship together in one accord. Uh, This actually can be used in, in a negative sense in one accord, or at least when bad things happen. When the crowds try to stone Stephen, uh, it says they are in one accord. Uh, they rushed together. You, you can imagine a, a mob scene and, and Stephen is preaching the gospel and they really don't like it. And it's not just a few people that are upset about it. It's, it's they are in one accord. They are all angry and they have this purpose and this fire in their eyes, if you will. And we are going to kill Stephen. Uh, There's another mob scene later on in Acts chapter 19. Um, Two people that worked with Paul, Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, who were Macedonians, it says. When they were in Ephesus, the the crowd, it says, they they rushed together into the theater to drag these guys out. 
Uh, and, and if you've ever seen mobs, sometimes they, you know, they all scatter and just do their own thing, and it can be rioting and looting. This was a mob that was intent on one goal. But the church should be a body of people that devotes itself to prayer, that we have the same goals, that we have the same purpose. Even though we all have different spiritual gifts, even though we all have different passions, some are very passionate about children's ministry. Eleanor, for example, is very passionate about uh, this grief share. Some of you are, are very gifted at, at preparing food or, or working behind the scenes. And, and it would scare you to death if we said, would you like to teach a Sunday school class? Despite all of those differences, the church works together. The church has one Purpose And the analogy that, that Paul uses in the book of Corinthians, it's like, a, like the human body. That, that each part of your human body, your fingers, your hands, your heart, your, your stomach, uh, they all do different things. But really, at the end of the day, they all have one purpose. And that's to keep you alive and allow you to live your life. Well, the church has a, a diversity of gifts, and each one of us has uh, different passions. Uh, I enjoy studying the Word of God. I enjoy, I was the, the nerd uh, in college and seminary who actually liked Greek and Hebrew, and, and that's just not for everybody, and that's okay. But in the church, despite the interests that we might have, at the end of the day, we are all one. And one of the ways that we become one and, and stay focused on this unity is rooting ourselves together in prayer. We should be praying for the same things. We should be praying for one another inside uh, the body. I would encourage you to, to pick up the little church directory that we have out there. And if we run out, I'll, I'll print some more. But, but take the names and, and pray through it regularly. Uh, what I do is I take all the names and I divide it up over five days, Monday through Friday, and I put, depending on how many names are on the list, I put, I divide them equally between the five days. And that's something uh, that you can do. And the reason I do five days is if I miss a day, then I have a, a cheat day. And of course, I have Sunday as well. Uh, but that's what I do. We are to become a church then rooted in prayer uh, like the disciples we need to prepare ourselves before God acts. Uh, our mindset should be unified prayer. Again, you can also grab, grab the prayer sheets. Uh, if you can't make it out to prayer meeting on, on Wednesday, uh, I try to have some extra prayer sheets here on Sunday, and it will give you a list so that we're all praying for the same things. But even beyond that, Scripture gives us guidelines to pray for. Paul, we regularly see praying for the spiritual growth of the church. He gives thanks for the people in the church. He prays that they would grow in their knowledge of God. That's something that we can pray for for each other. He prays that they would be a gospel witness and, and that the church would be, uh, be built up and, and bear fruit. Romans chapter five, verse five and, or excuse me, chapter 15, verses five and six. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony uh, with one another in one accord with Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be praying for in Acts, but, but even today in the church. An effective church is a praying church. I hope you really believe that, that you understand that, that apart from God, we can really do nothing. And so prayer is coming before him and asking him to work. And it is an act of acknowledging our dependence upon him. There are things that we can try and we can do and we can do them till we're blue in the face. But if we don't devote ourselves to prayer, we are not relying on God. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, the, the apostles, the twelve, uh, there's concern about the widows uh, getting food and the apostles appoint other people to take care of it because that was important 
But they also said we need to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I want to just give you an example. I've been, I've been doing a little bit of working out. Okay, I've been doing little dumbbell lifts. You probably can't tell or see it, but it's been, it's been, good, it's been good for me, and it's been good uh, to give some energy to me in the morning. Uh, I don't have to drink a cup of coffee right away. I still drink my coffee. I can't go without coffee, but uh, it's been good. But, I, but I've learned something. I've been watching a little bit of YouTube videos here and there, uh, about how to lift and, and what forms to use. And I've, I've learned something. You can lift, the, some of these big weight lifters, right, they lift a lot of weights. But if you don't do it with the right form, it's not really effective. If you, you can be someone who lifts less weight, but does it with the right form, and it actually has a greater effect on your body. Think about that in relationship to prayer. We can be a church that tries to do a whole lot of things, and it may not have a big payoff unless we pray. Prayer is like the right form for our exercising. It's something that we bathe all of our activities in so we might acknowledge our dependence upon God. I want to just encourage you, renew your commitment to prayer. The other week, I had a little prayer card for you to put down uh, names of lost people that you're going, you, you would like to regularly pray for. They're still out there if you need to grab one. But take that with you. Pray for efforts to evangelize. Pray that, that people might find our church and be drawn in. Pray that God would give you opportunities to share the gospel. Second, this morning... Uh, we need to be devoted uh, to the Word of God. And we see that here in how Peter uh, responds. Let me just kind of give a, a word of caution as we go into this next section. This is a, a very unique circumstance in the life of the early church. Uh, now, there are lessons for us out of this, but, but this need to replace Judas, uh, who had been one of the twelve, one of the apostles, is, is unique in, in the same way that Jesus' death is unique and it doesn't get repeated, or the resurrection is unique and it doesn't get repeated, uh, the uniqueness of the twelve disciples and the need to replace one is, is very unique in the sense that this is something that only happens uh, one time and only needs to happen uh, one time. Uh, it's not something that happens down through the ages. There is no uh, succession of the apostles through the bishop of Rome or, or something uh, like that. Nevertheless, we can learn in here about how to use Scripture. And even we can be encouraged with the high priority, the high reverence that right from the beginning the church gives to the Word of God. The church, the, the body of Christ, the people of the Lord have always been a people committed to the Word of God. That we are grounded in the Word of God. That God has spoken to us uh, in His written Word. So Len, look at verses 15 through 17. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and allotted his share in this ministry. Where did Peter learn that the scriptures had to be fulfilled in replacing Judas. Peter learned this from the way he saw Jesus handle Scripture. Jesus often taught the disciples, the Scriptures have to be fulfilled. I have to die on the cross. The Scriptures have to be fulfilled. I have to rise again from the dead. He even says then, and the Gospel has to go to the nations. That is a prophecy, a promise given in the Old Testament that the nations, that people from every tribe and tongue will come to the Lord. And so Peter is looking at what's going on. He's looking and saying, or he's thinking through these passages and saying, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to come. That is going to be a fulfillment 
of promises, various promises uh, in the Old Testament. And so Peter is saying, look, we lost Judas. We have 11 people now that are apostles, that are disciples. Scripture has to be fulfilled and we need to replace him. And we'll show you what scriptures in just a second uh, had to be fulfilled. I want you to notice in verses 18 and 19, there's sort of a parenthesis. Now, when the, old, when the New Testament was written, um, they did not put punctuation in. They did not have modern day parentheses or periods or semicolons or commas. In fact, the very old manuscripts don't even write in uh, the vowels. It's just all the consonants put in. So imagine if you had to read your English Bible that way. Uh, it's even harder reading Greek that way if you ever look at an old manuscript. But this is sort of an aside that Luke gives us. This is what had happened uh, to Judas. Uh, Judas had uh, says he had acquired a field with regard of his wickedness, falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed forward. And it says then the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they knew about this. This was called uh, the field of blood. Uh, this is probably one of those stories when you're a little kid, when you're a little boy, especially you're like, oh, that's so cool. Uh, maybe not so cool as as an adult. I want to just point out something briefly, and that's Matthew. Matthew's gospel tells us that Judas hanged himself. It also tells us that Judas took the 30 pieces of silver back, threw it before the elders and the chief priests, and the elders and the chief priests took the money uh, and went out and bought a field with it. And so some people will look at Matthew and they will look at Scripture and they will say, oh, there, see, obviously Scripture contradicts itself. Uh, and, it, and it's not very hard to run into uh, non-believers who very quickly will throw passages out like that and say, ah, oh, Scripture contradicts itself. What's interesting to me is that these two verses are right at the spot where Peter is giving us a high picture of the authority of the Word of God. And so it is not wrong to say, look, how do we try to fit these two passages uh, together, realizing that sometimes scripture, it, it doesn't give us all the details. It's, it would be like in some cases, it's like where two news reporters show up at the same crime scene and, and one gives us part of the information and the other person gives us another part of the information. And if you didn't know, you would think, oh, wow, maybe they're talking about different things. And then you look and you say, oh, this is how the details fit together. No, they're really talking about the same crime scene or whatever. It can be very much like that in Scripture. And I think the simplest explanation and, and the one that is probably most accurate is Judas probably did hang himself. And during this time, it would have been the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. And, and the Jewish people would not have cut down the body. And so it probably would have, you know, being out in the sun and all this disgusting stuff, the body would become bloated. And that need, leads naturally to the part of the story, the part of the events that Luke tells us about. Uh, later church history had a tradition that, that whatever Judas had hung himself on, the branch broke, uh, and that's how he fell down, fell down. I don't know if that's exactly how he fell down, but it's perfectly natural to say he hung himself, and then something happened that the body fell and, and broke open. It's also probably Luke's intent here when it says this man acquired a field. He's probably using it in such a way to, to, to describe that his money was used to buy a field. And so it's in a sense saying, look, they, they bought it in his name. Remember that when the, the elders and the chief priests, when the silver was thrown back at them, they didn't accept it. They said, we can't put this into the temple. It's blood money. Do you think they're going to take that money and go out and say, OK, now we're going to buy a field? Now, they probably just bought it and it was known to be bought in his name because it was his money and they didn't want to accept it back. Ironically, they're the ones that gave him the money. It was blood money. But when it comes back to him, they're like, oh, we can't we can't touch that. That's dirty blood money. The point to get across here is that Scripture does not contradict itself. And we, too, should have a high view of Scripture just like Peter does. And it's the word of God that, that it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, that God actually speaks to you and I in the word that is written. 
And because He's the one that speaks to us, we need to be real careful that we are obedient in all that it says. We need to seek to rightly understand it, right? So we don't want to misapply it. But like the early church, we devote ourselves to the Word of God. Sometimes people today in our, in our culture in America will poo-poo this idea. Even, even sometimes Christians in certain circles or people that claim to be Christians will say, wow, you, you're exalting the, the Word. If you give the Word of God such a high priority, you're, you're making it like God. You're making it the fourth member of, of the Trinity is kind of the, the little dig that I've seen out there at various times. But the reason... We give a high priority to the Word of God is not because it replaces God. But if God is actually speaking in it, it is the voice of God. God is saying these things. So we we honor the Word not because uh, there's something, not because the Word is God, but because God has spoken. It would be like if I send a letter to one of my children and then I go away for a long time, they would keep that letter and cherish it and say, this is the instruction my dad had for me. They wouldn't say that this letter is my dad, but they would honor it because they honor me. Very similar then to the Word of God. And this is how Peter then, moving along, this is how Peter handles it. Look at verse 20. He says, For it was written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So it is a quote from two different Psalms. The first is Psalm 69, verse 25. May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Um, I'll try to give you the shortened version of what's going on here and why Peter's doing this. Uh, I could probably, I love this sort of technical stuff, so I could probably spend a whole afternoon talking about how the Old Testament uses the New Testament. And if you want to know more, I'd, I'd love to chat with you and we can talk about it a little more. But, but here's the basic thing, okay? Sometimes what the New Testament does is it takes a, a Psalm of David and, and the Holy Spirit guided David Uh, David is the one that put pen to paper, but God is speaking through David. And David is often speaking about circumstances, trials that he goes through. Oftentimes he's got enemies, just like Jesus had enemies. And so David is talking about his own things. But he's also, because the Holy Spirit is at work, talking about future things. And there are like patterns that, that get fulfilled. Things that happen to David. Uh, repeat themselves in a in a climactic way in a in a this ultimately points to Jesus sort of way and that's because God has put together the whole bible even though it has various human authors it ultimately has one author god divine uh, and if you have ever read a a really good novel even a, a piece of of fiction um, I'm reading a book right now. See, I knew this would come up. It's it's called On uh, ba- Basilisk Station. It's it's this cool space novel. It's really fun. But a really good author, and this is what the author does, is he puts these little hints along the way, and he says, you know, he gives you these clues. And and one of the clues in the book I'm reading is there's going to be this invasion. And I just last night, right before bed got to the point where the main character figures it all out. And I'm, after this afternoon, I'm going to dive into it and hopefully finish the book. But, but in an analogous way, because God is the one big author of Scripture, God does this. He gives us clues. Things happen to David that are not ultimately, at the end of the day, just about David and the persecution and the suffering that he faces. It's going to be about what happens to Jesus. And we'll see Peter do this uh, later on with Psalm chapter 16. David talks about his life needing to be delivered from the grave. And Peter will say, that's ultimately not about David. How do I know? Because David has died and he's buried and there's his, we can show you where his tomb is. It's ultimately about Jesus. 
And that's what's going on here with Psalm 69. David had cried out for salvation. He had used this imagery of the cords of death around him. He had almost drowning, uh, his life going down to the pit, which is imagery of, of going almost to, to death and God delivering him up out of this and then saying, may my enemy, may his camp become desolate and, and no one there to dwell in it. Well, it becomes fulfilled in Judas. Same way, let another take his office. That's from Psalm 109. Uh, Psalm 109, shocker, comes right before Psalm 110. Wow, that's, that's... But Psalm 110, the reason I bring that up is it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's about Jesus, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David saying, God in heaven said to my Lord, the Messiah whom I worship, the coming one, sit at my right hand. Peter is thinking through that psalm as Jesus has just ascended into heaven and remembering some words then from Psalm 109 right before it saying, let another take his place. And you look at that psalm and David was again under some sort of trial and some people had betrayed him. And, and Peter basically looks and said, the final fulfillment, the real point of that psalm, the ultimate goal was to be fulfilled in Jesus. And so Peter says, hey, we've got to make sure that another person fulfills the ministry of one of the 12 apostles. Let me just try to connect this then a little bit to us and, and give some application. First, the church must not just affirm the authority of Scripture. We need to practice the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture is not just something we, we put down on a doctrinal statement. It's not just something that Peter looked at and said, well, of course we believe Scriptures from the Word of God. It's got to be fulfilled. And then they went on and did all kinds of other things. They used the Word of God. They applied the Word of God. They said, this is giving us, for their situation, unique instruction because there are only 12 apostles and now one needs to be replaced and there aren't apostles down through the rest of church history. But it was something that they said, we need to see that we obey the Word of God. We need, as well, to not just be devoted to the Word of God in theory, but in practice, doing what it says, using it in ways uh, that are faithful to what it is. How would you like it? Did, did you ever have this happen maybe with your kids or with someone and you're in a conversation with them and they, you, you give them a whole bunch of explanations and they pick out the one thing that they really wanted to hear and that's the only thing that they remember. Maybe you told your kids, you can have a cookie after you clean your room. And all your kids do, and some, stuff like this similar has happened in our house. All the kids hear is, you can have a cookie, right? And they go out and they have cookies, and you come home and you say, hey, you didn't clean your room. Oh, I never heard that. Well, you heard the part about the cookie. Sometimes we use the Word of God that way, and churches use the Word of God that way. We take the part that we like. We, we take just a snippet of it. We call it a proof text, meaning... It's what I wanted to hear for that moment. It, it affirms what I already believed. And then we just kind of sh shuffle to the side the parts that are difficult, the parts that challenge us, the parts that maybe we don't want to hear because it might expose something, a sin, a need that we have, a, a fact that we don't trust Jesus as much as we thought we did. We need to be a church committed to trying to use, to the best of our ability, the whole Word of God, faithfully interpreting and applying it, of, of course, but not just picking out the parts that we like. That's what it means to be devoted to the Word of God. There is a prominent American pastor. I won't, I won't give you his name, but he has a very big church, and he's said in various places in various occasions that he's not committed, and you shouldn't be as a pastor committed to expository preaching, the idea of just preaching through sections of the Bible. And his explanation is, he goes, that doesn't work. People want a message that's relevant for them. 
And so he advocates sort of taking verses here and there and and crafting messages according to the need of the moment. Now the Bible has something to say in every circumstance and it speaks to us in some way about the whole of life. But I need to be careful. And that's one of the reasons I love just taking a book and you know, next week we'll pick right up in Acts chapter 2. Because then if we get to a hard passage, we can't skip it. Because it's the Word of God. I'll confess to you, I almost skipped this section this week. Because I said to myself, how am I going to apply this message about Judas? I made the mistake one time of preaching about Judas's betrayal on Mother's Day. Not my finest hour to do a nice Mother's Day sermon on Judas betraying Jesus. Um, so I'm a little leery about, okay, we're back in Judas. But if we're really committed to the Bible, I kind of said to myself, we can't just gloss over this. One more application. Peter, two principles guided Peter here as he applied the word of God. One, he basically said the Holy Spirit gave this to us. And second, he said, the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus. And as you read the Bible, you can look at it with those same eyes and say, the Holy Spirit gave this to us. And the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate point of the whole of Scripture in all of the instruction it gives, in all of the varied stories, true stories through the Old Testament that it gives, the ultimate point of the, the, the portrait of the Bible is that man is a sinner and God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die and rise again. The story of God's working in the world is all about Jesus at the end of the day. And that's a principle that we can stick with. And that's something that that as you think about your Christian life, that, that guides you. Do you read the Bible with that lens on? That it is ultimately all about Jesus. Do you live your life then in turn? You're taking in the Word of God and saying then, all of my life then needs to be about Jesus, my Lord and Master. Even as we look and we want God to be active in our church, We want to pray, just like the early church says, and say, God, grow this church and and bear fruit and, and work in our spiritual lives as well. To do that, to have that happen, we need to say, it's all about Jesus. Do we want a a, a growing church, a healthy church, so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, look at how far we've come. Look at what we've been able to accomplish. Or do we want it so that we can say, Jesus is really awesome. He's more awesome than I even knew when I started this journey of my Christian life. Finally, this morning, we too need to become witnesses to the resurrection. So there's the replacement going on here. And so the replacement apostle, uh, Mattathias, must be with Jesus' ministry from the beginning. And this is one of the reasons there aren't new apostles today. The two qualifications, uh, at least in this passage, the the qualification for being an apostle is one, seeing Jesus' ministry, all of it. And two, witnessing the resurrection of Jesus. None of us have physically seen the resurrection of Jesus. We believe it because it's true, because it's happened, because we have the testimony of the apostles and and it's given to us in the word of God. But the apostle as an office doesn't repeat down through church history. Paul is unique. Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. But in 1 Corinthians 15, he describes himself as one abnormally born. It was a unique circumstance where Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. But what God is doing in the early church is he is like like building a building. And Paul tells us in Ephesians that that the, the foundation is built on the prophets and the apostles And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And the whole big building then is is the church that's existed down through since the time of Jesus in various places, people uh, around the world. 
But when one of those foundation pieces, Judas, betrays Jesus, it's like taking part of that foundation out. We have a gap here. We have a a hole. It needs to be filled. And so they appoint, according to the word of God, uh, Mattathias, so that as the church grows, it's built on a foundation. That these guys, in a special way, are, are appointed unique witnesses. Apostle means one who is sent. And, and in the ancient world, an apostle could speak with the authority of the one who sent them. Speak in an even more powerful way than you and I can when we share the word of God. The apostle, Mattathias, fulfills this Ministry And one of the reasons there needs to be 12, I think, is because there were the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus had said the apostles would judge the 12 tribes of Israel and rule over them in the future. And so you can't just go forward with 11 if you have 12 tribes of Israel. But the point is this. And this is where there's an analogy between what's going on there and going on now in our day. Jesus builds his church. And he builds it by laying a foundation. For us, he has laid the foundation of our local church on the word of God that the apostles of the early church wrote down the things that we needed to know. When the apostles go and when Paul preaches in Thessalonica, he writes them later on and he says, you accepted our message not as the word of man, but as the word of God. And it planted a church there. And the the word bore fruit. And God grew it. We need to accept the Bible not as the word of man, but as the word of God. And God will use it because he has built this one church. And he puts it on a foundation. And the cornerstone is Jesus who died and rose again so that we might become people of God. And then after Jesus goes away so that we would understand the whole of his message, he he puts the footers to the building, the rest of the foundation, apostles and prophets and there. They teach the word of God and they give us this inspired word of God. And we are now 2000 years later and we are like up on the walls of the building. Maybe maybe our church is a window or I don't know if we're the stained glass window or maybe we're a little brick in the corner of of the building. Uh, Use whatever imagery you want. But that is what God is doing. And that is what God can do in our midst. That even as a local church, we are part of a much bigger program that God is doing. He is building His church. I don't know if you saw... I just actually went down this week. I heard somebody talking last week. I think it was actually Ned... Uh, talking that the old Duke Street Church building, um, the church that some of you might not know this, but we were in Duke Street from like 1954 to like 1974 or something like that. One of the walls fell down. Yeah, some of you have seen it. I went down there and took a picture this week and sent it to Dave Allen because that was the church that he grew up in. And they've got they've got beams there and it's holding it up and new wood and they've blocked off the street and they're gonna they're gonna fix it. But sometimes churches, not now speaking of the physical building, uh, let's take the physical building as an analogy for what sometimes happens in the spiritual building. Sometimes there's a setback. Uh, a chip happens. A couple blocks get, get knocked out. And we've sort of had that happen uh, in our history in, in the church just recently. But you know what? God continues to build his church on the foundation One of the things that I want to encourage you to pray for is pray for our church. Pray that God would continue the work of the gospel. But pray specifically that God would raise up servants in the church, but also in particular elders in the life of the church. Now we have, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, I feel honored to be called here as a pastor. Uh, We have Steve Del Duco and, and Ralph Soper who continue to be uh, interim elders, and they we just met this week, and they pray for the church and ask how things are going. And, of course, Pastor Soper was here uh, last week. But the reason a church has elders is because God uses it 
to take the word of God so that they might feed the church and help the church do the work of the ministry, building it up, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.12, building up the body of Christ. We are like that. and We need to ask the Lord to build up the body. And so the connection between us and Acts, Judas is a very you know, unique circumstance. It's it's very special, particular incident. There were only 12 apostles. That doesn't get repeated. But the connection is, look at how Jesus is building his church and he's not even there. He's using Peter. He's using prayer. He's using the Word of God. Jesus isn't physically present with us today. But he wants to be active in our midst. And he will use prayer according to his will and he will use the word of God and we need to ask God to do that and when when parts of the the wall chip away or or fall out or we have setbacks the Lord will continue his faithful work of building up his body we might not be witnesses to the resurrection in the same way the apostles were Okay, we don't have the exact same ministry of the apostle, but we are witnesses to what the Word of God says. And we need to tell people that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. One of the things that we see going on as we go through the book of Acts is every person in the church becomes a witness, they become a testimony. They share the the truth of what Jesus has done. You might not be able to be an apostle. I can't become an apostle. But we can become a witness. And each one of us has a share in that ministry because the Lord will use it to build His church. Let me just challenge you. Devote yourself to the Word of God, to the Apostles' teaching, and devote yourself to witnessing so that every Christian might be a missionary. Take the prayer list. Put someone on there that you think that God would have you share with the good news of the Gospel. Invite them to church. Sit down with a cup of coffee with them. Invite them over to your home for some pie and ice cream. Try to steer the conversation to the things of God and even just saying, let me tell you about Jesus. Have I ever told you about how I became a Christian and what Jesus did for me? Each one of us is a witness. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just ask that you would uh, raise us up as a church. Uh, We believe that you are the one who builds your church and, and, and you promise that that the gates of hell will not um, overcome the church. And you've been doing that for 2,000 years. And we ask that you would be pleased to just do that in our midst. Build us up. Help us to be witnesses. Help us to rely on you more in prayer. Lord, some of these things are are so basic. And maybe we say, I've heard this a hundred times before. But may it be the sort of this is a football moment that we realize, yeah, that really is our calling to prayer, to the Word of God, to being a witness. We thank you for your goodness and kindness. We thank you for your empowering in these things. We thank you that you uh, give us motivation when that's even lacking in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.